It is good to see you here this morning. I see a few new faces. I am Pastor Mike, along serving the church along with Pastor Nick, who just did our announcements, our youth pastor, Pastor Cleet, who opened up, and then Pastor Charles. If studies are accurate, you have been exposed this last week to about two books full of words via the news. I'm sure you were dialed in on the news this week. Um, via podcasts and social media and all the rest. I don't think I would be uh, risking too much to say that the vast majority of those words are not true. And so this is a time every week where we can break open the smelling salts of God's word and be reawakened to reality. So if you have a Bible, please open up to Ephesians 1. I want to speak to you, not what Mike thinks, but out of the mind of God this morning. Ephesians chapter 1. As you're turning there, I just want to say I'm super excited for the giving tree coming up. Carmen, thank you for leading that. And this year is going to be even better because because of that COVID madness. We couldn't have direct contact with the families and kids this year we can. So I hope we just uh, take every one of those opportunities to reach out with gifts and then the gift of the gospel. Let's pray and we'll dive in. Father, we thank you for the privilege of gathering here this morning to worship you. One of the signs of a real follower of Christ is we want to gather with the family to worship our Father. So we do that this morning. I thank you for the power of the gospel. That song, My Chains Fell Off. We thank you for the brother who's back with us now after being away now 80 days sober. And we pray, Lord, that you would give him the power to say no to substance because Jesus is better. And yet, Lord, we would acknowledge that sometimes we put those chains back on us. We stop believing in the power of the gospel. And we experience so much stress and distress Um, needlessly. There'll be enough in this world as it is, but we add to it exponentially when we walk in our own ways. So rescue us from that this morning. I pray for the chunk of the body that is under the weather, that you would, Lord, strengthen them physically, and may they even meet with you spiritually in the quietness of their homes and hearts. But Father, I pray that you would work in power by your spirit, through your word, word, for our good and ultimately for your glory. And all God's people prayed, Amen. Ephesians chapter 1. Now, nearly every Christian that ever existed, probably all, suffers from an affliction that I call gospel amnesia. Namely, we forget the gospel. We plain out, flat out, we forget the gospel. Now, we don't forget the gospel in the sense of not remembering the gospel and the God of all grace who made it happen. No, not in that sense. We we forget in the sense of not relishing the gospel and the God of all grace that made it happen. The uh, RPMs in our heart would be like at 500 instead of 5,000. It ain't doing much in our soul. 
What I'm trying to say is gospel amnesia is not so much a cerebral thing as it is a celebratory thing. It's nothing new to the people of God. You remember Elijah, this stalwart prophet who God used to do so much. He suffers not just a bit, but a lot. And you remember what he does? Elijah, in effect, forgets the God of grace, and he has a pity party in a cave. But like Elijah, affliction can hit us, suffering can hit us. We can forget in that celebratory sense God and the gospel of grace, and we can commence sometimes a long season and trajectory of pouting because we forget the gospel. Or take bold Peter. Lord, I'll never deny you. These chumps over here, they probably will, but they're not me. You were with him, weren't you? I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know this man. And you know the deal. Before the cock crowed, was it twice or three times? Boom, denial. And what does he do? He says, I go, he didn't say hunting, okay. He said, I go fishing. In other words, I am a loser And I have shanked it so bad, there's no way I would ever follow Christ again. Well, like Peter, when we sin in scarlet, right, we can forget the gospel and the God of all grace that made it happen, and we can, instead of running toward God, we can run away from God. Does that make sense? I don't really know what comes first, the chicken or the egg, but I do know this. When we stop celebrating the gospel of grace, we stop experiencing the power of the gospel of grace in everyday life. And when we stop experiencing the power of the gospel of grace in everyday life, we then stop celebrating the gospel of grace. I don't know which comes first. I think they just are kind of synergistic. But I will say this at any rate. This is why we must keep the gospel on the front burner of our heads and our hearts. And so this morning, we are going to look at Ephesians chapter 1, one of the greatest passages in all of sacred scripture that lays out in vivid technicolor all that God has done for his people. Some actually think these verses, specifically verses 3 through 14, are an ancient hymn, an ancient praise song. They very well may be. There's kind of three stanzas. The first stanza focused on the Father. The second stanza focused on the Son. And the third stanza primarily focused on the Spirit. And, and I want you to see something, because all three of those stanzas end with a similar refrain. So drop your eyeballs on Ephesians chapter 1 to verse 6, where it says, the first stanza ending with these words, to the praise of his glorious grace, go down to verse 12, to the praise of his glory, and then verse 14, likewise, to the praise of his glory. This threefold refrain kind of gets to what we need to get back to. Celebrating the gospel and praising the God of all grace. That we would, to drop our eyes on some more verses here, looking at verses 7 and 8, 
we would understand that according to the riches of his grace, end of verse 7, now beginning of verse 8, which he lavished upon us, that we would understand, we have a fresh awareness that I have been lavished with the immense riches of God's grace if I'm a Christian. And that ought to move up the RPMs in my heart. This text does not say that he has dabbled us with a drop of grace. It doesn't say that he has scarcely given us but a small bit of grace. It doesn't say he gave us, he rationed us a minuscule portion of grace. Man, oh man, it says we have been lavished with the riches of his grace. So I hope you dive in with me this morning. Because we're going to look at six ways God has lavished us with the riches of his grace. Are you guys with me? Let's, let's, let's saturate ourselves in this grace. Six ways we've been lavished with the riches of his grace. Number one, look at verses three and four. Let me read them. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now he's going to enumerate some of these heavenly blessings. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. Truth number one, glorious, grace-drenched gospel truth number one is if you are truly a Christian, not not a papier-mâché Christian, not a fake Christian, but really a Christian, is because you were chosen by the Father. And according to this text, you were chosen by the Father before you existed, before anyone else existed, man alive, even before the world itself existed, God said to you, mine. Now it befuddles me how people labor and bend over backwards to say that God chose who he chose because he saw something favorable in them. You've heard that before, right? God chose you, they say, because he saw that you would choose him. Now, that's just silly, right? Because if God wanted to say that, he would have said that, but he didn't say that. He just said, no, you were chosen before the foundation of the world. It's only silly, that is, bad theology when you consider how the Bible describes people outside of Christ. Did you know that the Bible describes a lost person? And I'm sure there's lost people in here right now. I thought I was a Christian for years until, boom, the lights went on and I was called to repentance and faith. Maybe that's you this morning. The Bible describes the person outside of Christ as dead in trespasses and sins. So how is a dead person going to choose God? You tell me that. Ephesians chapter 2. The Bible describes the person outside of Christ as blind to spiritual truth, 1 Corinthians 2. The Bible describes the person outside of Christ not as running after God, but running away from God, Romans chapter 3. And all of that because Romans chapter 5 says the person outside of Christ is actually an enemy of God. Joel Osteen might not tell you that, but the Bible will tell you that. And that's because Romans chapter 8, we're naturally at enmity or hostility with God. 
Why else do you think the world's in the present state that it is, by the way? I know, I know, I know everybody fancies the thought that they really love God. But when presented with the truth about the true and living God, (laughs) those descriptions come out, don't they? Dead, blind, at enmity, hostility. But now, look at you, true Christians here. Look at you. You were in that great sea of fallen, rebellious humanity, but now you really love God. What happened? (laughs) What happened was this. The Father did what with you? He chose you. And again, it wasn't because of anything good in you. That absolutely robs this truth of its celebratory power, right? I mean, if you're an athlete, Pastor Cleet was talking about playing soccer growing up and trying out for a team, and he made the team. He would have been grateful for making the team. When I've made a team, I'm grateful for making the team. But at the end of the day, the reason the coach chose us to be on the teams is because we brought some level of skill, right? Or even if there's just a $1.9 billion uh, lottery, right? Let's say that you, you, you paid $2 and got a ticket and you struck the numbers. You would be extremely grateful, no doubt, but you'd also say, man, I'm glad when I bought those pops, pop and chips, I also bought that one ticket, right? Like, I'm thankful that I did that. So a better illustration would be somebody who won the $1.9 billion mega lottery and you don't even know anything about it, and you're walking down the street, and they give you the ticket that has all the numbers. That would probably strike. Like, they, they, they chose you not because of anything in you. But even that doesn't capture that, because the Bible describes us not, as, not just as undeserving, but what? Ill-deserving sinners. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Yet the Father chose a people for his name. Has that ever ravished your heart with gospel love. Wow, Father, you chose chump me to be part of your family. Thank you. Glorious gospel aspect number two, verse five. It says this. In love, those two words in love, end of verse four, really go with verse five. In love, he predestined us for adoption for adoption to himself. Now, I love those two words in love because that is just a that's that's a, that's a reminder that it was the mighty oceanic love of God that compels every aspect of this gospel grace. It was God's incredible love for us. But you might ask, you got the word chosen, some verses election, same word, and you have the word predestination. You might say those kind of are hitting on the same thing, aren't they? Don't they kind of like address the same thing? So what's the difference between being elected or chosen and being predestined. Anybody have that somewhere in their thinking? Like, what's the difference? I remember when I was in seminary, my pastor preaching through Ephesians 1 for three years, an awesome series. His name was Mark Minnick. And he, and he kind of laid out the difference between election and predestination. It's, it's something like this. Election is something that happened when? Before when? Before the foundation of the world. Predestination is God working out that elective decision in time. And that comes out when you look at the word in its original uh, language, not to be fancy or whatever, but the word is 
pro-horizo. When you hear the word horizo, what word comes to mind? Horizon, that's exactly, and pro is pre. In other words, having chosen those he has chosen, he then pre-horizoned them off to himself. What does that mean? It means he crafted the circumstances in your life that it would eventuate you in you coming to faith in Jesus Christ. I mean, when I checked into my Marine Corps battalion, why did this guy at Gearhand, I don't know if he gave me a canteen or H harness or something like that, why did he very brashly ask me about my relationship with God? Who controlled that? Why, why did your co-worker invite you to that Bible study that you responded to and came to Christ in? Why were you born with believing parents? You see, I could go on and on with all kinds of particularities of how you came to faith in Christ through various means, right? Now, was that accidental? Was that coincidental? No, baby. That was intentional. That was the God of all grace who chose you now moving in on you to bring you to himself. That ought to cause a little bit of celebration. He worked in my life to bring me to himself. And by the way, he's got a role for all of us to play in that pro-horizony because there are people in your life that he is moving in on who he would bring to himself and he wants to use you. So let's open our eyes to those opportunities to be used by God to see people translated out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the son of his love. Number two, you have been predestined. I got to rush. I got to rush. I've been feasting on this for three weeks, okay? So let me move a little quicker. Third of all, verse three, I'm sorry, verse five, it says you've been adopted. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons. Now, notice the word adoption, not merely given legal status, not merely... I'll hold my nose, but you can come on in, tolerate it. No, 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 no. Adopted. Brought into his family as children. Adopted. Now, I want to debunk a common statement that is false. How many times do you hear people say, talking about all of humanity, that we're all children of God? Right or wrong? Wrong. We're not. Now, we're all created by God, right? <laughs> we're all created by God. We actually all have intrinsic value because we're all made in the image of God, Imago Dei. But we're not all children of God. Before you trust Christ, you're not in God's family. Therefore, you're not a child of God. Now, I don't want you to believe that just on the strength of what I'm saying. I want you to believe it on the strength of what the Word says. So just flip over one page to chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, so that we can forever um, relieve ourselves of repeating something that is not true and not helpful. Chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead, there it is, I mentioned that before, in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. See that? Sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, and I did for 26 years, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, 
And we're by nature, now read the next three words. We're by nature what? Children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Before we were in Christ, we are what those outside of Christ still are, children of wrath. But now, because of God's grace, you've been adopted. And while it, this, is, this is hard for me to believe and maybe hard for you to believe, do you know that if you are adopted, you're more deeply loved and deeply cherished than the most deeply loved or deeply cherished human child, biological, adopted, or otherwise. Do you know that's true? It's just true. Do you ever struggle to believe that? I struggle to believe that because I'm just not feeling it. And when I'm not feeling it, what do I need to do? I need to go to what this text says. I need to go to what God did in order that I might be brought into his family. Because the text goes on to say, adoption, how? To himself as sons through who? Through Jesus Christ. I need to dial in on that. And I'm going to come back to that in truth four and five. But let me just remind us of these truths. Maybe this will be the means of somebody's salvation here. Just the word of God. The Bible says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that if you would believe in him, you would not perish, but you would have everlasting life. Everlasting life. Romans 5.8, but God demonstrated his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And this one, this is the coup d'etat right here. First Peter, no, Galatians 4. But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law to redeem those of us who were under the law that we might receive adoption as sons, sons and daughters. And because we are his sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Does that happen to you? Do you understand that Christ died, 1 Peter 3, 18, the just for the unjust, to bring us to God? And because we have been adopted, you have a new family relationship with God. You're no longer a child of wrath. You're a child of the Father. He's now your Father, not just your Creator. And you also, this, this is mind-blowing, you have a new relationship with Jesus Christ. Do you realize people outside of Jesus Christ, this is what they're going to do when he returns? Somebody prayed about his return this morning in our pre-service prayer meeting. It says in Revelation 6.16 that when Jesus Christ returns, for those who have never turned to him for forgiveness and new life, they will cry out to the mountains and to the rocks, say, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the, here it is, wrath of the Lamb. And yet if you have come to the Lamb of God, do you know what that means? That means he isn't coming to you that way. He is now, according to Hebrews 11, your elder brother. You're a brother with the Lord Jesus Christ. You have a new family relationship with God as your father, with Jesus as your older brother. And one of the signs, and we're going to end here in a little while, one of the signs that you are in Christ is you have a new family relationship with others. Others. Doesn't matter where they come from. Doesn't matter how much money they make, what they look like, and nothing like that. What matters is he that has the Son of God has life, and he does not have the Son of God, does not have life, and the wrath of God abides in him. And you want to be with those people as 
nasty as they can be just like you sometimes. Now, number four, and I'm going to really accelerate. You have been, number four, redeemed. In him we have redemption through his blood. Now, redemption reminds us of something being purchased, right? So you see a coupon or a Groupon and you, and you buy it and it says redeemable for two meals uh, on this date or whatever. It, it's, it's kind of um, transactional terminology. We were purchased out of the slave market of sin. Do you know that? My chains fell off. Only unlike slavery in the past and slavery that goes on to this day, where people are forced into slavery, right? It's not of their own will and, they're in the, in, in, and all that. Captured and forced. We chose this slavery again and again and again. Yes, we're sinners by birth. There's Adamic nature, but we're also sinners maliciously by choice. We, men hate the light because they love the darkness. John chapter 3, Jesus said. And yet Christ has set us free from this slavery. That's why if you're in Christ, you wrestle against sin instead of unilaterally go along with it and excuse it and rationalize it. One of the signs of the Christian, now you're in the fight because you trusted the victim. And it says our text, through his blood. It reminds us of the marquee deliverance in the Old Testament. The marquee deliverance in the Old Testament, the people of God, in the book of Exodus, called the Exodus, is when the Egyptians were brutally enslaving the Israelites. Remember that? And God, God delivers them through ten plagues. The tenth plague, God said, that I am going to strike the firstborn in everybody, everybody's house in this land unless I see the blood of a lamb put on your doorpost. You remember that? And the believing Israelites would slay a lamb and put the blood on the doorpost of their house and the death angel would pass over and their firstborn would not strike their house. If you come to faith in Jesus Christ and you by faith put the blood that he shed on the cross on the doorpost of your stinking heart, he will pass over you in judgment because the judgment you deserve fell on the place of sacrifice, the cross of Calvary. Building on this Old Testament motif of atonement and blood, after that exodus, do you remember how God had this pretty elaborate sacrificial system that he prescribed for the Israelites? A fancy tent, a tabernacle, and a temple, and there's all kinds of furniture in there. But one of the primary pieces of furniture in the Holy of Holies was called the Ark of the Covenant, which was a chest of sorts. Do you remember what was inside that chest? couple different things, I think Aaron's, Aaron's rod, but also the, deck, the, the tablets of the law, which the people of God were incessantly breaking. But on top of this Ark of the Covenant, everybody remember this thing, the Halastrion, the mercy seat, ornate, I think bronze, wings. Well, the Day of Atonement, a bull or some beast would be slayed, slain, and then the priest would go in there and he would put blood as he confessed the sins of Israel on the mercy seat so God who could see that the law had been broken had also been atoned for. Now fast forward to Jesus Christ. John sees him. He looks like an Israelite, like any other Israelite male about his age. And he says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then later, Paul will give us this great commentary where it says in Romans chapter 3, there's no distinction. 
For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And then he goes on to say, and all can be justified. It's the idea. As a gift by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth to be a propitiation, wrath-absorbing sacrifice by his sins, by his blood for our sins. And Peter doesn't want us to forget that it was the blood of Jesus Christ that rescues us because it says in 1 Peter, know this, that you were not redeemed, there's the word again, from your old way of living, thinking by corruptible things such as silver and gold, but by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Have you been set free? I will tell you, heaven's top 40 playlist is Revelation 1.5. They're singing it right now. To him who loved us and washed us and freed us from our sins by his blood. You have been redeemed if you're in Christ. Fifth of all, you have been forgiven. Verse 7. Forgiven, 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 forgiven. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. You see, if you're in Christ, you are not only set free, redeemed, ransomed from slavery to sin, you're also set free from the guilt of sin. I, I just be candid with you, but I'm not going to be real candid, but I'll be just candid enough to let you know I can be more candid. <laughs> Okay? There are things I've done in my life that so fill me with shame and regret that if you were to play them on the screen behind my head, you would never see me again. God knows all about them because he's got x-ray vision. He sees everything all the time anyway. And yet when I put my faith in Jesus Christ, he separated me from my sin as far as the east is from the west. And if you're in Christ, you are no longer under the guilt of your sin. Now, there's this weird dynamic, though, where sometimes people who truly are under the guilt of sin, maybe they even profess Christ, but there's nothing in their life reflects that. I'm talking about lost people, ultimately, who actually cauterize themselves to that guilt. Like, you kind of wish they felt some guilt, honestly, because guilt leads us to the cross. While people who truly have been forgiven of their sin, Christians, they repented and trusted him, somehow walk under a thick cloud of low-grade perpetual guilt. Even though Jesus Christ decisively dealt with that guilt on the cross. I just want to say to you that if you have truly turned to Jesus Christ, you could not possibly be more forgiven than you are right now. And even from the moment that you trusted him. Now that is incredible grace, right? No wonder he ends right here, this, this section, verse 7 and 8, according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us. Now number 6, fast forward, let's go down to verse 13. It says, in him also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire full possession of it to the praise of his glory. I'm just, I'm going to move fast, but when you trusted Christ, the Spirit of God marked you as one of God's own forever. You ever uh, buy some clothing and you want to make sure it's the real deal, so like it's designer clothing, and you look at the label. Now that's kind of not really foolproof because they're knockoffs, right? 
or you can just rip the label off. And then I think in the cattle business, they do branding. A little harder to deal with that. But it's far better than branding. The Holy Spirit indwells those who really have trusted Christ. That's why when you go back to the old way of living, you can't live that way with any kind of happiness because you ain't that person anymore. Philippians 1.6 says, being confident of this very thing, that the God who has begun a good work in you will perform it all the way through the day of Jesus Christ's return. In other words, God, if you're really in Christ, he's going to get you safely home. You have been saved. Now, what have we looked at? Three things the Father has done for his kids. Chosen, predestined, adopted. Two things Jesus has done. He has redeemed and forgiven. And one thing that the Spirit has done, sealed. I mean, we really are signed, sealed, and delivered. Even if we don't feel like it, signed, sealed, and delivered. So verse 15, Paul wants to encourage them because they have real faith. Now I want to ask you, would Paul be able to encourage you as having real faith? Would he be able to? Verse 15, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Could he encourage you? Now, is faith something you can see? Can I pull out of my pocket? I want to show you seven units of faith. How do you see faith? How do you see somebody have faith in Jesus? How did he hear about their faith? Come on, talk to me. What, what is, how do you see faith? Action. So there would be worship, right? You really believe he's bought you by his blood. You're going to praise him right? There's going to be service, right? I, I'm in a new family. I need to serve, right? You're going to see that, wouldn't you, at some point? Probably going to see repentance because we're going to shank it early and often and we need to get it under the blood. You're going to, see, in other words, you're going to see a walk, right? Like a relationship with Christ begins at a certain point in time, but if it's a real one, it continues. And the Bible is epic with it, like short-term relationships where it's not saving them. They saw he was able to see their faith, right? So I guess my question is, would Paul be able to encourage you by your faith based on your worship, service, repentance walk? There's a lot of fake faith out there, man. A lot of paper mache Christians. It's heartbreaking, but it's just true. Not them, not them, not them. He heard about their real faith, right? And here's another manifestation of real faith. What does he go on to say? He says, and your Love toward all the saints. You love other Christians. You love other Christians. They're in your family now. You love them. So it leads to a prayer that we would know and feel the weight and freight of what I, what I just preached. And I'm going to end with that in just a second. But I, I, do, I do want to address those who have never, in, the, in my presence right now, you've never experienced gospel amnesia because you've never trusted in Christ. And you might say, and you're just being honest with me, like, man, you've hit a lot of stuff, dude. You hit uh, election, you hit predestination, adoption, uh, redemption, you hit forgiveness, and even this thing about sealing. Like, what is all that? Or maybe you're thinking, oh, you heard something about God choosing people. Well, how would I know that I'm cho chosen? Great, great hypothetical, perhaps real question for some of you. The way you know 
the grace of election or any of these other gospel graces belong to you is revealed by what you do with Jesus Christ. Say it right there. You go to Ephesians 1.13 once again. He says, in him also when you did what with the word of truth? You heard it, so now you hear it. You've heard the gospel, right? You've heard the good news of Jesus, and you did what? Believed in him. And Bible belief, so many people get this wrong to the eternal damnation. Bible belief isn't just head knowledge, it's agreeing with truth. The demons believe and they tremble, right? You could say, do you believe in George Washington? Yeah, I I think I do. Didn't he chop down a cherry tree and they say he threw a silver dollar across the Delaware? That's probably all myth. I don't know. And I asked somebody, what, are you trusting George Washington for anything? I'm like, well, what do you mean trusting him? He's long gone. How would I trust in him in anything? A lot of people's belief in Jesus is like that. Maybe they believe he existed, but Bible belief means you transfer your hope to him Believing he died to reconcile you to the Father, not only to break the chains of sin, but so that you would grow in following him. In other words, one who trusts Christ follows Christ. Has that happened to you? I just want to ask, has that happened to you? For by grace, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 9, you can be saved through faith. And not, not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, so that no one could boast. For we are his worksmanship created in Christ Jesus. For good works, which God prepared for, prepared for beforehand. I guess that means really wind down. We should walk in them. Are you walking in those? Are you walking in those? Now, closing with this point. I gave an action step for non-Christians here. You need to trust Christ. Here are two closing action steps for those who, like me, often experience the affliction of gospel amnesia. And it's simply this to pursue, and to pray. You might just need to get off your butt and shake off your complacency and pursue a growing knowledge of and gratitude for the gospel in all of its glorious gospel-packed facets. Just start by camping on this passage. I've done that for three weeks. prioritize gathering with the saints. In everything in life in which people grow and excel with, they never do it alone. Doc Haver didn't become a doc by saying, you know, I just think I'm going to, I'll download a few lectures. And, uh, you know, and, and maybe I'll order like a laboratory kit and I'll figure this out. No, he was around other people. You want to become a good athlete? You, you Surely, you, yes, you work out on your own. Spiritual analogy would be devotions. But you got to work out with a team too, right? Right, Kenny? You got to go, you got to get BP, you got to get fielding practice, you, you got to work as a team. And you then, if you're going to pursue God, that means you immerse yourself in the family of God, the local church. You memorize God's word, sing, and, and I could go on. And I'm just going to close. And, and you pray. You pray. You pray again for a deeper uh, gratitude for. The knowledge of the gospel, the God of all grace that we might have. Because the remainder, and I'm just going to distill this down, the remainder of the chapter is a prayer. And basically the prayer is, I don't, have, I don't begin to have time to walk through it all, is distilled down to its very essence. 
this prayer is that we would feel and understand the depth and the weight of what the God of all grace has done for us. He says stuff, just real quickly, he says stuff like that God, the Father of glory, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, verse 17, the Father of glory may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation, and there's a little prefix there that's not always translated in the epigenosco, in the full knowledge of him. Having, he goes on to say in verse 18, the eyes of your heart enlightened. The word there is photizo. It's like when you take, uh, uh, so you're developing pictures in a, in a photography booth and the light comes in and there's exposure and all that. That's the idea, that there would be exposure to the light of the gospel. And he wants us to know three things. Number one, that you would know the hope to which he has called you. Isn't that the thing we so often lack hope? Isn't it that? Isn't it that? There's subjective hope. I feel hope. I don't feel hope. And there's objective hope. And here he wants you to say, even when you're not subjectively feeling hope, don't forget the subjective hope. His hope to which he's called you. He is going to fulfill everything he said. He is going to glorify you. Yes, there is an end to futility. Yes, it really does have a happy ending. It really does. So we say with Paul, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17, for this light, it doesn't feel light, momentary, it doesn't feel momentary, but this light, momentary affliction is working in you an eternal weight of glory. As you look, not at the things that are seen, but at the things that are unseen. And baby, if all you're looking at is things that are seen, you'll never have that hope. You're going to flounder and you're going to suffer needlessly. You must Fix your eyes on the author and finisher of our faith in all of life's trials. Number two, he says this. He says that you would know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Now, we, I think something in our mind reads this to the riches of our inheritance, doesn't it? But whose riches of inheritance is he talking about? Ours or God's? This is kind of mind-blowing when I think of what a chump I am. I and you, if you're in Christ, are what he calls the riches of his inheritance. Isn't that crazy? Like, it's crazy enough that you read in different places in the Bible that God actually sings over his people. He sings over us. Here it says he considers us to be the riches of his inheritance, which means the gospel is so much more than I think it is. And what God is doing is just not this personal relationship with me and Christ. It is, but it's a lot bigger. It involves me with a family who then are the eternal inheritance of the living God. It's amazing. It's incredible. It's crazy. Having a people for his name is an everlastingly precious thing for him. And number three, he wants you to know what we often don't feel, the power you have in Jesus Christ. He stacks six words on top, of the, on top of the other to make the point of the power that you have. Look at this. Look at this. Look at this. And what is word one? The immeasurable word two, greatness of his, number three, power towards us who believe according to the working four of his great five might that he worked when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavens. He wants you to really understand that the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead physically 
is the power that resides in you. That's crazy too, isn't it? How much do you think, how much change would we experience that we don't experience if we just laid hold of this promise that I have the power to obey what God wants me to obey for my good and his glory? Now, you, you've, you, you've heard the word here this morning, best I know how from this plain text, powerful text, profound text. And you've been summoned to action. So what are you going to do? Who here needs to trust in Jesus Christ this morning? We're going to have a couple people near the AV booth and back. And if you want to put your faith in Jesus Christ, and you want to know without a shadow of a doubt that your sins are forgiven and that you're a child of God, no longer a child of wrath, and you really want to turn your life over to Christ, there's going to be somebody in the back. And they, again, opinions are like armpits. We have more than one of them, and they tend to stink. You don't need an opinion when it comes to your never die, never die everlasting soul. You need the truth of God. This person will open up the Word of God and just, just repeat what I share with you in simple form of how you can know that you're a Christian. And maybe you are one that you just, you just need to get off your butt. Don't, 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 don't be a Peter and say, I'm going to keep running because I shanked you. We all have. Don't be Elijah. Have pity party. Shake off complacency and pursue him. Pursue, pursue, pursue. And then maybe pray that the weight, the gravitas of all this would fall on you. I'm going to read a benediction that after we sing two songs, Hangil is going to close the service with. So if you brothers would come to lead us in musical worship, I want to encourage you with this benediction as you consider whether you need to turn to Christ for a first time, whether you need to shake off complacency and pursue Christ in a renewed way, or whether you need to really dive in to praying these things that you receive. That's what he says in Ephesians chapter 3. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we could ask or think, according to the power, there it is, at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Father, would you move in power that your people would press into you, pray to you in a renewed way, and would you pull the lost man, woman, or child to yourself right now, empower them to see their sin and run to the Savior. And may we sing these closing songs, um, not just remembering this truth in our head and being dead, but relishing them in our hearts. What celebratory power there is in the gospel. We praise you in Jesus' name.